0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxess. I'd like to welcome you to Crosswinds, the Spirit Lake campus. It's good to have you, especially if you're a visitor here with us on this holiday weekend. It's just great to have you uh, worshiping with us. This particular Fourth of July promises to be a little different around the lakes, around the lakes, because fireworks are now (laughs) legal. Anybody notice that? Uh, You can tell where he's been putting his money, it's all going up in smoke. All right, yeah. Well, hopefully this is a a good holiday for everybody and hopefully nobody blows themselves up now that fireworks are legal. Right, Dalton? All right. Well, this summer we've had a special emphasis here on our Spirit Lake campus. And we've sort of summarized this emphasis up in this little phrase. It says, don't just attend church, but be the church. And what we've realized is that oftentimes in our society, we get used to attending church just like you go to an event, but then you come in and then you walk out, and there's not a lot of relationships there. And as we've been working our way through the book of First Timothy, we see that Paul is consistently talking about the fact that the church is not just an event you attend, it's a family. It's a place where you belong. It's where you walk in the door and it's like, cheers, you know, people know your name. People care about you. People are genuinely interested in you. So that's our focus this summer, to try and be the church to one another. And if you're a visitor, I really hope that genuinely when you've come today, that you feel welcomed and you feel like you've been part of a family because that's what the church is. Now, this summer... uh, We also had 10 particular steps I challenged everybody to take to try and be more welcoming. And I said I'd remind you of at least one of those steps every week. And so today I'm reminding you of step number five. And this is what step number five was. Make sure you wear your name tag. Real simple. Incidentally, we're sort of new at this name tag thing at the church. We've been just printing these uh, for the last few weeks, and it's going really well. I've heard a lot of positive feedback from people because people are saying, I like this because when I meet people in the hall, I sit there and I say, I know who they are, but I can't remember their name. But when you have a name tag on, all that goes away, doesn't it? And so it's just been a way to be more welcoming. Also, it's the way we take attendance here at Crosswinds because if your name tag has been up on the wall for a few weeks and you haven't taken it off, myself or somebody else from the church will call you and say, hey, we just missed you. noticed you haven't been here for a while. We just want to call and as a family, we care. So I want to encourage you to do that. By the way, if you are somebody who is getting to be a little regular at Crosswinds, even if this is your summer home, the easiest way to get a name tag is simply fill out this yellow card. On the yellow card, uh, after you put your name and address, there's a little box under there that says, I want a name tag. Check that. Leave the yellow card in the pews. When the ushers pick it up, we'll have a name tag up there for you next week. And all I can say to that is, welcome to the family. Well, we have been uh, uh, working our way through the book of First Timothy. Today, we are actually going to finish that book for those of you who've been keeping track, <clears throat> you know I can make a series incredibly long. Uh, but I, this is actually the 18th message in the book of 1 Timothy. And you wonder, well, what are we going to do after 1 Timothy? Next week, we begin the book of Ruth, which will not take nearly as long. It'll only be four weeks. But if you are somebody who loves a good love story, you are somebody who loves the story of a, a woman whose life was ruined and then it is transformed into restoration, you will love the book of Ruth. If you are somebody who is incredibly encouraged to see what God can do with a life that is broken and on the rocks, and when somebody turns their life over to Him and they trust in Him, how can God take that life and restore it and do something beautiful? You're going to love the book of Ruth. And so that's where we're all going to begin next week. After Ruth, we will spend the rest of the summer focusing on a series called Afterlife, where we are going to look at what the Bible says about life after death. And we're going to talk about what happens literally one minute after you die, we'll give you a little preview of what the scriptures say. We'll look at heaven, hell, the new creation. We'll try and take the uh, maze of the millennium and explain that and show you how that works. We'll even look at uh, what our earthly, or or what our resurrection bodies look like, and the new body we're going to eventually have through Jesus Christ. It's pretty exciting stuff. The last week or two in that series will be a special week called Build Your Own Sermon Sunday. What that means is I'll be giving you a variety of topics that I won't necessarily plan on covering in the preaching series, and I'll also let you suggest topics that I may not even have on my list, and you guys get to start voting for which ones you want me to preach on in those final two weeks. So you get to build and determine what those message or two at the end of the series are going to be. So it's going to be fun to do that as we look forward to the rest of the summer. But this morning, we are back in the book of 1 Timothy for the very final verses. Now, if you were here with us last week, it felt like Paul finished the letter. Paul gave his impassioned plea to Timothy in those uh, verses, Timothy, be a good pastor. And he described what some of those qualities were that Timothy should be striving for. I mean, Paul loves Timothy. We learned that he had been a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul for 14 years, day in and day out, they served together. And so Paul had this plea for the son he loves to do a great job in that church of Ephesus. Ephesus. But it feels like what happened is Paul finished the letter, and then you know how you write something, then you go back and you reread it, and uh, you realize, well, maybe I didn't quite come across clearly the way I want to. And so you add a P.S. on the end to try and straighten things out. These final verses feel like the P.S. that Paul has added on the end of the letter to make sure a few things he said a little bit earlier are not misunderstood, you see, in 1 Timothy 6, a few paragraphs back, Paul talked about the dangers of loving money. And he talked about the importance of learning to be content with what God has given you. And he said, you know, if God has given you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have food, clothing, and shelter, be content, be happy, you have enough. But I think after Paul reread that, he said, that could possibly be misunderstood. Because Paul said, watch out for the dangers of loving money, not the danger of having money. And there is a difference. Ephesus, just so you know, was one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient world. All the commerce, almost all the commerce that went through Asia Minor and back to Rome traveled through the city of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus had many extremely wealthy people in it. Not because they loved money, but simply because they were just good business men and women. And they made a good, legitimate, and honest profit. Now, in these final verses, what Paul does is he gives six instructions to the wealthy about how they can use their money to properly give honor and glory to God. He doesn't say that if you're rich, you should give all of your money away to follow Christ. He doesn't say that if you're rich, you have to take a vow of poverty to follow Christ. He says if you're rich, because God has blessed you that way, let me tell you how to properly use your money to honor our Lord and Savior. And with that, let's dive into the text. How should a Christian handle wealth? The first thing we're going to see is this. Paul says, don't let your wealth make you arrogant. Arrogant. He says, for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. As for the rich in this present age, he says, charge them. Now this word charge is a very strong word. It's not suggest, insinuate. Literally, you could also translate it as command. Command them. Make sure they understand this. Do not let your wealth make you haughty. Haughty means proud. It means you think of yourself like you're a pretty important person. I'm a pretty good guy because I'm wealthy. And then you start to look down on other people because they're not wealthy. And pride sort of starts to fill you. Now, if you have managed to accumulate wealth, he says, don't boast about it. Don't let your wealth become your identity, and don't let your wealth become a source of pride. If you've managed to accumulate wealth, do you have that wealth because you did it? Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, no. I mean, did you make some wise choices to save money and invest money? Probably yes. And did you make some wise business decisions that you pursued? Probably yes. So you did make some wise choices. But in the reality, your wealth really comes from God, not from you. Let me explain why all of our wealth is a gift from God. We all know people that are smarter than us. We all know people that work much harder than we do but for reasons known only to God. He didn't put them in the right places to meet the right people at the right time that their decisions turned into as much wealth as it did for you. Isn't it true? God put people who are wealthy in the right place at the right time with the right people that when they made their right decisions, it turned into financial benefit. So, here's the deal. You need to make sure you, yeah, do you work hard? Do you save? Yes, but you give God all the credit because he's the one who has put you where, you where you need to be so you end up with the results. For instance, think of it this way. Some people have married into wealth. Now, is that something that you really made a good choice on or did God bless you with that? He gets all the credit. Other people were born into families that are wealthy. Do you get the credit for that? Or does God get the credit for that? Having wealth can very quickly, for most people, lead to arrogance. But what the scriptures tell us is having wealth should actually lead to gratefulness and thankfulness to God because He is the one who has given you the good gift. Instead of haughtiness, should be gratefulness. In addition, instead of pride, we should pursue humility. Pride is thinking of yourself as better than others. Humility is thinking of others as better than yourself. It's the exact opposite. Now, why should we pursue humility actively if we have been given the gift of wealth? Here's the reason. Our example that we follow as Christians is Jesus. Though Jesus was rich, Jesus chose to become poor. In humility, he chose to humble himself, to die in our place for our sins, to confine himself to a human body so he can experience the agony of the cross, and to take the wrath that we deserve upon himself in humility so that we would be rich. Just as Jesus was rich, yet he pursued humility, we are to do the same. What does it say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. First thing Paul says is don't let wealth make you arrogant. The next thing he says comes right after that comma. He says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Here's his point. Don't set your hopes for the future on the uncertainty of wealth. Wealth provides an incredibly false sense of security for the future. Many people say, the reason I sleep well at night is because of thy My 401K is full. The reality is you should sleep well at night because the tomb is empty. Isn't that the truth? Your security does not come from your finances. Your security comes from your Savior. You may work very hard to gain wealth, but let me tell you something. It's very easy to lose wealth, and it happens in the most unexpected ways. Sometimes wealth is lost from wasteful and wanton living. You guys know the story in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son who lost a great deal of wealth because he chose to spend it on a bunch of junk. But the reality is, many people lose wealth by investing it. Now, there's a two edged sword here because if you have wealth, you need to invest it, don't you? because investing it is the only way to keep it, and it's the only way to grow it. But investment, by nature, involves risk, and it means you can lose wealth. There's an interesting story I ran across as I was doing my research this week. 1928, there was actually a meeting of the nine of the wealthiest men in the world at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. What you had in that meeting was the... Um, presidents of the largest gas, steel, utility companies. You had the uh, most successful wheat speculator. You had the president of the New York Stock Exchange. You had a president of an international bank. These are the ten, or uh, excuse me, the nine wealthiest men in the world whose money could buy anything. And here's what they all have in common. Within 10 years, every single one of them was penniless. Charles Schwab, who was the president of the uh, richest and biggest steel company, went broke. He Spent the last five years of his life borrowing money just to survive. Howard Hobson was the president of the largest gas company in the world. He went penniless and then went insane. Arthur Cotton was the most successful wheat speculator at the time. He ended up penniless. Richard Whitney, who was the president at the time of the New York Stock Exchange, ended up in prison for the rest of his life. And it goes on and on. Every single one of them lost all their wealth. No hope, no security for the future. I like this verse from Proverbs. Proverbs 23, through 4 through 5, it says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Now doesn't it sound like the writer of Proverbs was looking at your checkbook? You know, I got my paycheck, things looked really good, and then I paid the bills. And now I'm trying to figure out how to survive for the next two weeks. Easy come, easy go when it comes to cash. So you cannot place your security for the future in your wealth but look where we are to place our security for the future. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God loves you. He sent His own Son to die for you. And no matter what happens in this life, no matter how your life comes off the tracks, God says, I will never leave you go. You may let go of me, but I will not let go of you. Nothing can thwart the plans I have for you. Isn't that good? Amen. That's why we place our hope and security for the future in Jesus. Doesn't mean our life is going to be easy doesn't mean all of our problems are going to go away. But he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's where our hope is. Well, now it takes a very interesting turn because there's been two warnings that were given to us. Don't become prideful with your wealth and don't try and find security for the future in your wealth. But then it says a really strange thing but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Enjoy the wealth that God provides. Now, I know that sounds wrong. We're in church. In church, the pastor is supposed to tell you that if you're wealthy, you're doing something wrong. You're doing something evil. You have to give it all away. But that's not what Paul says. He says, you can enjoy the wealth that God provides. God, out of his incredible kindness to us, has provided us pleasures in this world. And God desires for us to enjoy the pleasures that he provides. We are to enjoy God's good gifts. And the good gifts that we enjoy should motivate us to have more gratitude and more worship to God for the gifts that He has given us. Let me put it to you this way. Who here likes the weather right now? Thank God! Thank you for this good gift. It is wonderful. Anybody like the lakes? Thank God for creating lakes! It is a really good gift he's given us to enjoy. Who here likes going out in the boats? Water skiing, wakeboarding. Yeah, yeah. we got a good guy in the back. Yeah, I'm the same way. I like doing that. Thank you, God, for your good gift of a wakeboard. So it gives us something to enjoy, and it causes us to have more worship, honor, and praise to God for the good things he has given. Anybody like fishing? Thank you, God, for creating fish. And by the way, they taste really good too. Thank you, God, for lights. (laughs) They're back. All right. But you see, what should happen is God's good gifts are given to us to enjoy. And as we enjoy them, it should motivate us to have more worship of God for them. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you'll know that Paul dealt with this very same subject back in 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's where he dealt with some false teachers who were into something called asceticism, which meant they wanted to deny themselves of any form of pleasure. Specifically, these guys were saying the really spiritual people are the vegan celibate people out there. If you're really spiritual, you're only going to eat vegetables and you're going to be celibate for the rest of your life. That's... The, the false teaching. And Paul said, absolutely not. The most pleasing people to God enjoy meat and marriage. Amen. Now, think of it this way anybody here like a nice T bone? Praise God for the T bone. And, you know, what's supposed to happen is you put that puppy on the grill, you know, and you cook it, and you put the little salts on it, you take it off, and you sit there. And as you eat that steak, you say, oh, thank you, God, for your good gifts. You gave this little section of the cow, I think, just so I could enjoy it. And it motivates more worship to God out of thankfulness for his goodness. Where the vegan who's sitting home nibbling on a piece of celery like a rabbit, trust me, God gets much less worship. It's true. It's just, it's just honest. It's true. God gets more worship when your joy is good gifts. And the same thing goes on with the celibate people. Because these false teachers were saying the celibate people are the ones that are really pleasing to God. And Paul says, absolutely not. It's the married people that give more worship to God. Because God created man. He created woman. He designed your sexuality. He designed the pleasure Of intimacy, and then he created the institution of marriage as a place where that gift can be enjoyed. And you get married and you're with your spouse and you cuddle up and you're there and you start saying in your heart, Oh God, thank you so much for giving me my husband. Thank you so much for giving me my wife. And thank you for giving us this good gift. And God's worship from your heart. Or the celibate person is just sitting home playing solitaire with the computer, and God's got getting nearly as much worship out of His heart as the married person's heart. And Paul takes that and he extends that right into wealth. You know, if God has given you some wealth, it's it's His good gift. It is okay to enjoy that. And let that wealth motivate your heart to greater levels of worship to God for His goodness. It's okay. You have a summer home in the lakes. Don't feel bad about it. Thank God for it. Thank you, God, for this good gift where it's a retreat where we can get away and refreshed and recharged, a place where my children and family can come and we can make good memories together. It's okay. You have a boat? Okay, well, thank you, God, for providing us the resources of having a boat. And I, Lord, help us to create good memories together that lead to more worship and honor and praise of you. That's the goal of what he's saying. Now, you have to realize, though, that everything can go backwards here. Well, before I do that, let me read this to you. Let me read for you Ecclesiastes 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one labors under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. And notice what he says here. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them, to accept his lot... And rejoice in his toil. This is a gift of God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. So if God has given you wealth, it's okay to enjoy it. Just let it motivate to more worship of God. Well, what if God hasn't given you nearly as much wealth? What do you do then? Well, don't be jealous of those who are more successful or who have been more blessed, the Bible would tell us, be thankful for the good gifts that God has given you. Take the good gifts that God has provided in this season, at this time. Enjoy them. And let that motivate your heart to greater worship. But here's an interesting piece you need to understand. We can totally mess this up in just a heartbeat. What often happens is people take the wealth that God has given and the joys that God has provided and they start to worship the gift instead of the giver. They turn the gift into the idol they worship instead of the gift being what motivates more worship to the one true Lord of the universe who's been so incredibly kind to us. Uh, let me give you an example of how this works. Maybe you have a summer home in the lakes. Thank God that he's given you that gift. But you come into the lakes and you're like, okay, I'm going to spend every single last waking moment on that boat and wakeboarding and jet skiing. And I do that as soon as I get here on Friday, all the way through until I leave late on Sunday night. And there's no time for reflection, no time for gratefulness, no time for worship, because you're worshiping the gift instead of the giver. The same thing happens when it comes to food. Typically, as Christians, we pray and thank God for our meal. And the goal is that before we take the food that we're about to enjoy, we thank God for His good gift, don't we? But sometimes what happens is we don't stop to thank God for the food and the pleasure we're about to enjoy. We just rush right in and completely forget Him, completely forget the joy of that meal, should help us express great gratitude to the giver who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. So, first thing we learn, if you have wealth, well, we've learned about two things there are warnings to stay away from. We've learned also that if you have wealth, you can enjoy that wealth. There's nothing wrong with that. But then he also says this, now, if you have wealth, be rich in good works with that wealth. Verses 18 and 19, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, if we have wealth, it's okay to enjoy it and spend it on ourselves. but he says here, don't spend all of it on yourself. In fact, give some of it away to others. Be rich in the good works you do with the wealth that God provides. And by the way, this is not just talking about rich Christians. Being rich in good works is actually an instruction to all Christians. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have or don't have. Look what it says in Titus chapter two, verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christians are all supposed to be about good works. Christian women. Now, the typically way that uh, it works for women is uh, they want to be, make sure they're um, pursuing good looks, right? But it says in the scriptures that Christian women pursue good Good works before they pursue good looks. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10 But what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? Godly women pursue good works. And Christian leaders, are they supposed to be, be men who uh, lord their authority over p- other people? Absolutely not they're supposed to be men who lead by the example of good works to other people. It says in Titus chapter 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. Now, incidentally, there is some very interesting things going on here in the Greek in this verse. The word good is not the typical word for good that is used many times in other parts of Scripture. This particular word for good only occurs one time in the Scriptures, and it's right here. And it means this. The good works that you do are to be actually good, not superficially good. So you have money, and you're going to seek to do good works, It's not easy. You can't just start writing checks. You have to figure out what is the best way to do the good works with the checks that you write. You have to evaluate what you are going to do to make sure what you're doing really makes a difference. Now, let me give you a funny example about the difference between actual good works and superficial good works. When I was uh, first a senior pastor a number of years ago, I met this guy at a coffee shop, met a number of times, had a really rough background, uh, gave his life to Christ, totally changed. One of those guys who goes from darkness to a complete transformation turnaround, he had the gift of generosity. He loved to help people, loved to give money away, loved to help anybody in any situation. But he was a new Christian, you know, sort of new, trying to figure out how to put this whole thing together. So it's getting close to Easter, and he comes into my, bu- my office, and he has a box. It's no joke, about this high, about this wide, like that. Big, huge box. He comes in with a big smile on his head. He says, you know, Pastor, Easter is coming. We want to make sure that everyone remembers the tomb is empty. And I've been thinking about what we can give people that will help remind them about Jesus Christ. And this is the perfect idea. And I I bought all of these things. I've got a huge supply of several hundred Jesus bobbleheads. Now, his heart was totally in the right place. I mean, just a new Christian, just zealous for Jesus. And he wanted to do good for people in the church. But quite honestly, at the end of the day, several hundred Jesus bobbleheads, probably more superficial good than actual good. You know, so as a Christian, when we go to seek to do good works, we have to evaluate what we're doing to make sure it's actually going to make a real difference. He gives some examples of how you do good works here. Rich Christians should be generous and willing to share. If you have wealth, one of the good things you can do with your wealth is simply be generous with it. Be willing to give it away. And the word generosity here is also another important word which I think is really exciting. It means lavish generosity, not typical generosity. It means over and above generosity is how you do your good works. Here's what it looks like. Say that you know know there's a single mother in the church with a number of kids, and she really wishes she could send her kids to camp. And God touches your heart, you know. We want to write the check. We want to pay for her kids to go to camp. That's right. That's generosity. But lavish generosity is saying she's going to have to drive all the way to camp. And she barely makes end meet. And she's going to have kids. They're going to stop at a McDonald's on the way. And they're going to want food. So I'm not just writing the check so she can go to to the camp so the kids can go there. But I'm actually writing a little bit more to pay for her gas and pay for the meal that those kids and the family are going to need when they drive back and forth to camp. You see how lavish generosity is different? And it leaves an even stronger, lasting impression. Now, you wonder, why are we commanded to show lavish generosity? Here is why. Because lavish generosity echoes echoes the generosity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and He died in our place for our sins, the Scriptures tell us He didn't just die to forgive us of our sins. But literally, the book of Ephesians tells us that He adopted us by faith into God's families, that Jesus Christ becomes our older brother. Right now, we are below the angels But one day, God will exalt us above the angels. And that as Christians, we are literally the most blessed beings in the entire universe. Not just sins forgiven, but blessed beyond anything we could ever fathom. That's lavish generosity. And our generosity that we extend should echo the kind of generosity that Jesus has given to us. When somebody says, why would you just not just pay for my kids, but you'd pay for so much more? You say, Because that's the way that Jesus has shown his generosity to you and to me. And you preach the gospel by the way you give. In addition, it says that if you are rich, you should be willing to share. Now the honest truth is there are a lot of things in life that are I call uh, occasional use. You don't need them all the time but you certainly could use them some of the time. If you're doing dirt work at your house and there's times where you could really use a bobcat you're probably not going to go out and buy a bobcat. But if you're rich and you can share your bobcat, it's exactly what scripture would say. If you need to move items, and you need a trailer. You can buy a trailer, but there's probably somebody who's a little bit well off, more well off than you are who has a trailer sitting around. that could loan it out to help you in your time of need. Maybe you uh, have a tree that falls down, and you're a young couple. You don't even have a chainsaw yet, but I guarantee you somebody does in their garage who's more well off than you, who'd be generous and willing to share. Maybe you need a generator. Somebody has one in their garage. Be generous. Now, here is where it gets interesting. Paul has been talking to these wealthy Ephesians and also wealthy Americans, quite honestly, about the importance of we, we could enjoy our, our wealth, but we also want to do good works with our wealth. We want to be generous with our wealth. We want to share our wealth. But the truth is that most people who have wealth have received their wealth because they're wise managers of it. You know, they save, they invest, they think about where their money is going. That's why they've been successful. And Paul appeals to that. He says, whenever you do good works with your wealth, you are laying up treasure in heaven for what is truly life, like the life after this life. Do you realize that whenever you do good works with your wealth and you're generous and you share, you are not throwing away your money? You are investing your money. The scriptures say that whatever we give away in good works is literally laid up as a treasure in heaven and we will receive it back in eternity as an eternal reward. Doing good works with wealth, let me say it again, is never throwing money away. It's laying up your money for your eternal retirement plan. Jesus says the exact same thing. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. When Jesus says this, he's referring to what is a good investment of your resources. In the ancient world, uh, wealth was um, often had in valuable clothing. Now, for us, clothing is no big deal. Some guy in a sweatshop in Taiwan makes it for us and gives it to us for $6. In the ancient world, all clothing was handmade, it was extremely valuable. Here's the problem. If you had a a lot of clothing, a moth gets in it. And a moth eats your clothing and it depreciates your wealth. It's not worth what it used to be. Also, uh, wealth was stored in precious metals at that time. And their precious metals were not usually pure. (laughs) They had other things in them. And what would happen is if you you had your metal, usually you'd bury it in the ground. And then what happens when it rains? It rains it gets wet. And when it gets wet, what does it start to do? To corrode. Possibly to rust. And corrosion and rust on metal slowly eats away at its weight, doesn't it? So you pull out what at one time was 20 pounds, weigh it again, and all of a sudden it's 18 pounds. The rust has depreciated it. But Jesus says, whatever you lay up in heaven through your generosity and giving it away in good works does not depreciate at all. The best place that you can invest your wealth is in heaven through doing good works. Isn't that pretty cool? Now, let me make the last point. He says this, The greatest riches are found in Christ, not in cash. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by for by, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith grace be with you this little phrase guard the deposit entrusted to you is interesting in the ancient world there were not many banks so when you went on vacation like you camped to the lakes you would take your valuables and you would entrust them into the hands of a friend and they were legally bound to keep your possessions in pristine condition until you returned. They were to guard the deposit entrusted to them. In fact, this little phrase in the Greek is literally the legal language used for that particular transaction. Paul says to Timothy, we've been talking about wealth and investing it and saving it and using it. The most wealthy important thing of all is the deposit that's been entrusted to you which is the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. You guard that. You keep that in pristine condition. Do not give in to the false teachers who want to bend it, twist it, manipulate it, make it say something different. You keep that exactly the way it should be. In fact, in the center of this book of 1 Timothy, Paul gives the purpose of this book, which is not just that, Paul would guard this deposit of the gospel, which is priceless, but that the church itself would be a beacon and a light of the gospel in the community. Look what he says. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, which is to be a pillar, a buttress of the truth in the world where it has been planted. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.